A great leader is the one who is not afraid to get his hands dirty. He's the one who's not threatened by a teammate getting the glory or credit in various situations. In fact, he celebrates that. A great leader inspires and demonstrates team and teamwork. So why would two guys leave comfortable jobs, move across the country and start a business in an industry they don't know, a place they don't know, and could it be successful? We're Dale and Brian Carmi. Join us as we share our story and inspire you to become people of impact. Welcome to the Impact Without Limits podcast. Hello and welcome back to the Impact Without Limits podcast. This is Dale Carmi here with a special episode for the month of November, sitting here with my brother Brian. Hey everybody. And today we're going to be featuring an interview we had with Steve Largent and he was out at our Foreverland Dealer Conference in January of this year. What an awesome experience that was because Steve was somebody I truly looked up to as a young kid watching football, playing football, and he had a storied career. He's a pro football hall of famer. I think he was the first receiver to 100 touchdowns. He has, has all kinds of records in his NFL career. After that, he went on and became a congressman for Oklahoma for, I think, two terms. And he is also a business owner and just a, a general great man, a great family man. So we're going to listen to some clips from his talk. We're going to listen to both a talk he gave and then a Q&A. We did have some audio challenges where we lost a couple of the questions, so it might be a shorter Q&A than you would expect. But there are some great insights, great information coming to us from Steve Largent. Here we go. Well, good morning, and thank you for that sitting ovation. <laughs> I appreciate it. You know, uh, they said they were going to have a question and answer period. So if you guys just give me the answer, I'll try to figure out what the question was, okay? Uh, I want you all to know that I intend to follow the five B's for effective public speaking. And these are very important. So if you ever are asked to speak publicly, you'll have them uh, in your hands so that you can speak effectively. And those five B's are, be brief, brother, be brief. And uh, I intend to be brief this morning. You know, I actually learned that lesson in a painful way. I had run for Congress for the first time in my life, never thought I would do that. Uh, my wife was the one that really encouraged me to run, and, and I listened to her most of the time. And uh, so I was running for Congress. Uh, I was a biology major. I didn't major in political science. I uh, didn't really know that much about politics, but I quickly learned. And uh, so now I was, I, I had run for office and I won. And, you know, I, as, as was mentioned in my introduction, I talked about, you know, lower taxes and less regulation and, and free markets and those kind of things. Those are things I believe in still today and, and believe with all my heart. Uh, so I won the election and, and the very first speech that I was asked to give after I was elected, it was like the day or two after the, the election, was from the downtown Chamber of Commerce in Tulsa, Oklahoma. And so I said, absolutely, I'll be there. Uh, tell me what time, what day, and I'm going to be there. And so I was really prepared, worked hard on my message, 
and uh, went to give my speech to the downtown chamber of commerce. And that, that included all the, I mean, most of the business people uh, in Tulsa were there. And so I knew this was a really important speech and I needed to just hit it out of the park with the things that I had campaigned on and believed in my heart. And so I really worked hard on it. So, you know, I was telling them about you know, the importance uh, of these issues uh, on our country and on our uh, state and in our city. And, you know, frankly, you know, looking back on it, it was a long list of things that I was uh, talking about. And so there was about, about halfway through my message, <laughs> half of my message, uh, a gentleman stood up in the middle of the crowd and headed towards the exit. And I was a little offended by that. You know, I wasn't even halfway through my messages, and here this guy's leaving. And so I just said, and you can do this in Tulsa, I just said, sir, where are you going? I said, I'm not even halfway through my notes. He goes, I'm sorry, Congressman, but I've got to get a haircut. And I said, well, couldn't you have gotten a haircut before you came? He said, I didn't need a haircut before I came. <laughs> so uh, anyway, I hope uh, to keep my message brief for you this, this morning. When I got to Congress, uh, it was really a great experience for me. I learned a lot about our country, our founding fathers, our founding documents. And uh, like I said, I was not a, a political science major. I was a guy whose wife convinced me to run for Congress. And once I got there, I was uh, asked quite frequently by Republicans and Democrats, did I miss playing football? They used to ask me that all the time. And so I like to tell this story in response to that question. There was a game that I played in Chicago. It was late in the season. Uh, both the Bears and the Seahawks were vying for a playoff spot. We were vying for a playoff spot. The AFC, where the Seahawks played at that time, uh, they're in the NFC today, but the Bears were in the NFC. And so both teams really needed to win this game. And for the first, uh, now, now this year was in 1987. And in 1987, the Seahawks had drafted in the supplemental draft uh, Brian Bosworth. How many people are from Oklahoma? So you know who Brian Bosworth is, and some of you who aren't in Oklahoma know who he is too, but they drafted Brian in the first round of the supplemental draft. And so he had played, and he played okay uh, the first half of the season, but going into this game, he was really fired up because it was on a nationally televised, it was a nationally televised game. And if you know anything about Brian, you know that he always tries to shine on national TV. And, you know, I was just, you know, concerned that we win the game. I didn't care how we won it. Uh, we just needed to win because we wanted to get in the playoffs. And so at this time in 1987, one of my uh, good friends, uh, Walter Payton, was still playing for the Chicago Bears. And Walter Payton was eating Brian Bosworth's lunch. Our defensive coaches had designed a scheme that put Brian Bosworth one-on-one -on -one with Walter Payton wherever he went. If he went left, Bosworth went left. If he went right, Bosworth went right. But his job was to stop Walter Payton. And for a quarter and a half, that was not happening. Walter Payton was having a field day at Brian Bosworth's expense and at his great embarrassment. And there was one particular play, and I was, I was on the sideline. Our defense was out on the field. Bosworth was out there trying to stop Payton. And one particular play, I was right on the line of scrimmage, and I saw the quarterback take the ball from center and toss it to Walter Payton, running a sweep right towards our sideline. And out of the middle of our defense, here comes Bosworth trying to cut him off before he makes it upfield. And so I saw there was going to be a huge collision right in front of me. 
You know, so I put my helmet on uh, just to make sure there's no collateral damage. And sure enough, Bosworth hits Peyton right on the sideline with the crown of his helmet. And you could hear it at the top of the stadium. And Bosworth, I mean, and, Peyton, and Walter Peyton's head snaps back. His head is the first thing to hit the ground. And his helmet flies off. And I'm thinking, oh, my gosh. Brian Bosworth has just killed Walter Payton. And I'm looking, and before Payton could even uh, do anything else, he jumps to his feet, grabs his helmet, and starts putting the pieces back into his helmet. The chin, the cheek pads had come out. So he's putting them back in his helmet, making his way back on the field. I'm thinking, that is a miracle. That's the hardest I've ever seen anybody ever hit and get back up. And Bosworth thought the same thing. So Bosworth goes up to Peyton and he grabs him face mask to face mask and pulls him. He screams in his face mask. He says, Peyton, you ever run that play again? I'm going to bite your head off. Peyton, without missing a beat, says, Bosworth, you bite my head off. You'll have more brains in your stomach than you ever had in your head. (laughs) Well, that was uh, Brian Bosworth. And uh, that was the story that I would share with my friends in Congress. I remember a game that we played... Uh, in Denver. We were playing against the Broncos in Denver, and uh, we had fallen behind in the first half, and our coach gave us, uh, it was Chuck Knox at the time, and he gave us a real inspiring uh, second-half speech, and uh, we we set out to turn things around. So the first play from scrimmage, uh, Dave Craig throws a little swing pass to Kurt Warner, and Kurt makes his way up the field, and he's actually made about 10 or 12 yards before about half the defense from the Denver Broncos tackles him. And when they tackle him, I'm down there trying to block for him, you know, 10 or 12 yards downfield. And uh, I see that Kurt gets tackled. And when he does, the ball comes out. Fumble! So I jump on the ball as quickly as I can. And I I huddle up because, you know, when those fumbles take place, you cannot imagine what's taking place in that rumble. Uh, Before the referees can part everybody and find out who discover who uh, recovered the ball. So I just, I just wrapped my arms around this ball and just squeezed as hard as I could and just waited for that onslaught of Broncos to try to rip the ball out of my arms. And I just held them like this and nothing happened. I looked around, I, I got back up and, and nobody tackled me. We recovered the ball first down Seattle Seahawks. Well, the referee comes to me at that time and he goes, Steve, he said, uh, he said, I've got some bad news. I said, what's that? Just tell me first down the Seattle Seahawks. He goes, well, um, what happened was there was a ball boy on the sideline, and he got excited when he saw Kurt make his way down the field, and he tripped on the yard marker and fumbled his ball out onto the field. So uh, anyway, I left my helmet on, went back to the bench, and stood under the bench for the next 10 minutes, uh, embarrassed and... uh, trying to find my way. <laughs> but uh, anyway, that's, uh, that, that's, that's what uh, playing in the NFL is like. <laughs> I would like to spend a little bit of time talking with you about some ideas and thoughts I have about a very important subject, in my opinion. It will hopefully help prevent you from falling on the wrong ball. In my experience in professional sports, in the business world, and in politics, Uh, I have seen that no team, no business, and no government can succeed without one critical element, and that's leadership. You can't have a winning team without strong leadership. 
Our libraries and bookstores are filled with books written about leadership. But why is it we see so little leadership by so few people? Well, I'd like to briefly offer you my own recipe for leadership. And it contains several crucial ingredients. Number one, in 1994, you'll remember uh, General Norman Schwarzkopf, the leader of our troops in Desert Storm, uh, began a speaking tour after he, retire, after he retired from the military. And one of his first stops was in Tulsa, Oklahoma. When I when asked after his remarks, General, what's the problem with the leadership of our country today? The general said this, the leadership vacuum in our country today is due not to a lack of competency, but from a lack of character. Let me repeat that. The leadership vacuum in our country is due not from a lack of competency, but from a lack of character. And I couldn't agree more with the general's assessment. It is character that is the hallmark of leadership. Oliver Wendell Holmes was a Supreme Court justice in the 1920s, and he once said, the things that lie before us and the things that lie behind us are tiny matters compared to the things that lie within us. Justice Holmes was speaking of your character. He was speaking of having good character, not being a character. J.C. Watts, the great quarterback from the University of Oklahoma and my colleague in the House of Representatives in Congress for eight years, he gave a great definition of character. He said, he didn't put it this way, character is doing what's right even when nobody's looking. The final thing I would say about character is this. One's character is always revealed under pressure. One's character is always revealed under pressure. The second quality of a leader is preparation. Preparation is always a signpost of a leader. We used to say in football, perfect preparation prevents piss-poor performance. Perfect preparation prevents piss-poor performance. And that everyone is ready to play a big game, but not everyone is prepared. We had lots of guys on the Seahawks who really gave football their time. They were staying late on the practice field, watching tapes, studying plays at home. But we also had a few guys who never really put out much effort, and so were never very successful. Chuck Knox, our coach, would repeat, work will win, wishing won't. We fought to be ready and prepared, and that's what great leaders have to do, preparation. The third thing, the third quality of a leader is courage. We see this every day demonstrated by the brave men and women in, in the armed services who protect our country. I remember the old American, the old, old movie, American Sniper, talk about brave and courageous. We have witnessed many courageous men like John F. Kennedy, Dr. Martin Luther King. Winston Churchill from England was one of my favorites. Churchill once said in the heat of the Germans bombing London, we will never, 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 never give up. And again, Churchill said, victory is not final. Defeat is not fatal. It's courage that counts. One of my favorite movies is an old movie, again, called Braveheart. Mel Gibson plays the part of William Wallace. In the movie, Wallace is confronting the heir apparent 
to the Scottish throne, Robert the Bruce. He challenges him to take the reins of leadership for Scotland. And he says this, he says, people don't follow titles, they follow courage. And how right William Wallace was, it takes courage to lead. The fourth ingredient of great leaders, great leaders are team players. Being a leader doesn't mean being a guy that sits on a throne barking out orders for others to follow. A great leader is the one who is not afraid to get his hands dirty. He's the one who's not threatened by a teammate getting the glory or credit in various situations. In fact, he celebrates that. A great leader inspires and demonstrates team and teamwork. Finally, a little group participation. Everybody raise your hand like this. And then form a circle like this. And then very slowly bring that circle and place it on your chin right here. Now look around. I said place it on your chin. This is your cheek. Very important lesson. People do what you do, not what you say. There's a saying that goes like this. You cannot teach what you do not know. And you cannot lead where you will not go. You have to lead by example. I want to close by reciting a quote by another one of our country's great leaders, Teddy Roosevelt. He said this, It's not the critic who counts, not the one who points out how the strong man stumbled or how the doer of deeds could have done them better. No, the credit belongs to the man who is actually in the arena whose face is marred with sweat and dust and blood, who strives valiantly, who errs and comes up short again and again, who knows the great enthusiasms, the great devotions, and spends himself in a worthy cause. So that his place, and who, if he fails, at least fails while daring greatly, so that his place will never be with those cold and timid souls who know neither victory nor defeat. This is leadership. And we need strong leaders today like never before. We need leaders who are leaders of character. We need leaders who are prepared. We need leaders who are courageous. We need leaders who inspire teamwork. We need leaders who lead by personal example. Be in the arena. Be, strive valiantly. Dare greatly. Finally, my last story is this. I lived with my grandparents for a year of my life as my parents were moving around the country, various places. I was in junior high at Putnam City High School, just across town here, and I counted a blessing. My grandfather was a hero and a leader to me a real man's man. One day we were riding in his car to baseball practice and he turned to me and he said, Steve, he said, I want to teach you two words that if you learn to say them often and sincerely will help you the rest of your life. Man, he didn't have to say anything else to get my attention. He said, those two words are thank you. And I think he was right. And I want to say these two words to you today. Thank you and God bless you all.
That was great. I loved it. Now, I didn't say, we were talking back there, I didn't tell you, Steve, I said you were one of my heroes. I wore number 80 in high school. That was my jersey. As a slow white wide receiver, I was not quite as good as you. That's why I'm here. I was the model for a lot of slow white wide receivers. Yeah. <laughs> but I'll tell you, I really believe you were the, I would say you were probably the toughest wide receiver I think ever played the game. You guys agree with that, those that know Steve? All right, so have some questions here. <laughs> These are questions from the audience, right? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, this is a great one. It's probably my favorite question. Who is your favorite Spencer brother? <laughs> <laughs> well, since I was the oldest child, I think maybe Ross. Hey, there we go. <laughs> but it's, it, they're, they're all good guys. It's a good group, isn't yeah. it? Jim Zorn or Dave Craig? Well, Jim's my best friend and has been since I started, first started playing with the Seahawks. So uh, that, that's a no-brainer. But uh, I talked to Dave. I called him last week, and I hope to see him at the Super Bowl because he lives down in the Scottsdale area. Gotcha. So I hope to see him there. But Jim's my best friend. We, were, we played together and bonded, and our wives are best friends. And so uh, he, uh, he's a real special guy. He still lives in Seattle, so I get to see him fairly often. Yeah, so w was it a difficult transition switching from, because Zorn was a left-hander, yeah, 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 Craig left was a right-hander. That's right. right. Yeah, so they, they each threw the ball completely different, not just being left-handed or right-handed, uh, which is different, but uh, they, Dave, Dave had a way of throwing a ball that, you know, it, it rarely spiraled, but it always got to where it was supposed to go. Uh, Jim had a more perfect spiral, but his was left-handed. So when you're catching a left-handed ball, I noted that his ball, when it's going, a deep ball, will fade to the left. Dave's will fade to the right. Of course, I was used to catching a right-handed quarterback because I'd always only played with right-handed quarterbacks. So that was a little bit of an adjustment, but it's just an adjust, adjustment for deeper passes. Uh, that was really the only uh, adjustment that I had to make playing with Jim. What do or did you need from your spouse to be supported while building? Assuming your business, maybe your career, all of that. Well, I, I'm only going to tell you guys this. I never, I've never said this before, but my wife is smarter than I am. <laughs> and I learned that at a very young age. And so I listen to my wife. I don't always do what she says, but I listen to her. <laughs> Uh, all the time. Uh, but yeah, my, my wife uh, has been my best friend since I was a junior in high school. We were high school classmates. One of us was a valedictorian and one of us was not a valedictorian. And I'll let you figure that out. But uh, no, she's, uh, she's, she's been by my side for a long, long time. We've celebrated our 20, no, our 47th anniversary last, this past, I mean, January 4th, what, 10 days ago or 12 days That's ago, awesome. whatever it is. Uh, so, yeah. Was there something that, that you needed from her or needed her to do to support you in the pursuit of your career? Well, I, I've had many careers now with uh, playing football and then being in Congress and then running a trade association for 12 years. And she has always been an encouragement to me 
just to be a man of God, number one, uh, that, that's number one, and everything else is falls far behind that. But in the way I conducted myself, the way I spoke with clarity and honesty and sincerity, uh, those were things that she always would uh, speak quietly into my ear. She never shouted. She never screamed. Uh, she never pushed. But she was always just a, uh, a lifelong encouragement to me. That's awesome. I mean, 47 years, and gosh, I'm only 48, so. <laughs> so how do you navigate, and you've had several careers, you've, some of them, I'm assuming, were pretty consuming. How do you navigate what, what people ask, that work-life balance, work-family balance? Well, it's always difficult. Then you got four kids, so you're, you got you know jobs, and they're demanding, and uh, a wife, and then you have four children, and they're demanding. And so there's, there's a lot on your plate uh, as a young guy going through life and, and uh, with kids and married. So it's a demanding position that you have. But I think my constant comfort and reassurance has been my relationship with Jesus uh, and listening to the things that he said and talked about and spoke into my life. And that, that was um, instrumental. In, uh, in my life. What was the most life-defining moment in your NFL career? Oh, in my NFL career. This was in my NFL career, and it's also in my life that this was a life-defining instance. And that's when my fourth child was born, and the doctors came to me, and, and he was born in the usual way, as they say. But the doctors came to me shortly after he was born and said, uh, Steve, I'm sorry, but your son uh, has spina bifida. And that's a small, it could be a small, it could be a large opening on the base of his spine is where his was. And it, it just never closed uh, in his formation as a, as a child. And uh, it, they said, it's, we're going to have to take him to surgery and he'll have surgery in 24 hours. And so that was like going from, you know, a really high point of having your fourth child, third son, to going down to having the worst things said to you. And that was my experience when Kramer was born. I, I'm, I'm proud to say that he's, he's doing okay. He's married. He married a doctor, so he's a smart guy. But he still has issues, still has problems. He walks with braces uh, below his knee. And, you know, he never was able to play sports. Or he, he played a little bit of sports, but not, not much. Uh, just was basically there to root his brothers and sister on. But, you know, it's, it, that, that's hard. That's a really difficult thing. And uh, it was difficult for my wife and for me. You know, just seeing Kramer and the bright spirit that he was and is was, was comforting to us. And now to see, you know, he got through college and he married a great gal. And, um, you know, she's, she, like I said, she's a doctor. And we feel like that uh, the Lord is really taking care of him and taking care of us. Uh, in this process. it's awesome. Jumping back over to, to football, the question was asked, over the course of your career, who was the toughest defender that ever guarded you that you had to go up against? Well, I would say that the best defensive player was Lawrence Taylor. The best defensive back was Mike Haynes. Mm -hmm. Mike played for the uh, Patriots for a number of years, three or four years, and then he was traded to the, the, the Raiders, uh, to, your to the Los Angeles Raiders and or Oakland Raiders when I was there. But 
Um, and so we had to play against them twice a year because the Raiders were in the same division the Seahawks were. The Seahawks are not in that division now, but they were in the same division with San Diego Chargers and Oakland Raiders and Denver Broncos and Kansas City Chiefs. So and it, it was always a really difficult division. But then you put one of the best cornerbacks in the game onto one of the best teams in the league. Uh, it, it became a difficult Sunday to play against him. But uh, it was always a challenge. And I was always super excited about playing against Mike Haynes because I felt like if I was as good as people said I was, that Mike Haynes wasn't going to beat me up. Congress, what was it like getting voted into Congress to serve your country? Oh, my gosh. Uh, how do I answer that question? Now, really, it was, uh, it was a great experience running for Congress in the first congressional district, uh, I met a ton of people that I didn't know or didn't know well. And we talked about a, a myriad of issues that were before Congress or needed to be before Congress that I could help them journey through the congressional maze. But I really loved it because it, it really connected me in a deeper way with the community that I live in. And I also got to meet just some great, great people on both sides of the aisle that you know are still friends today. It was an experience that was better than I would have ever imagined. I would tell you that this number keeps going down, but I think maybe 80% of the people that are in Congress, regardless of Republican or Democrat, are there for the right reasons. They're trying to do the right thing. Uh, they're working for their people. And I love the fact that they're in Congress, Republican and Democrat alike. But there's 20%, and these 20% always get all the attention, are the ones that screw up the, the place. And you wish that as a member of Congress, you could just you know, slap them around and say, come on, get, get, get in line and uh, do what we're supposed to be doing. You can't do that, obviously. But they, they give a bad name to everybody else, and that's really unfortunate. And like I said, the number keeps coming down. Maybe you would have said 90% of the people, but now it's down to 80%. And I hope it doesn't go down any further. Yeah, I'm actually surprised you have that number that high. I, I, I would say that encourages me some because I look at it and get very frustrated from the outside yeah. looking in thinking, well, I, we I don't I, have I, that many that are there for the right reason. I, and I was discouraged too when I went. And then I found out, hey, these guys are just trying to do what they told their constituents they were going to do. And there were some situations that I felt like that a member misled the rest of us and misled his constituents. But that didn't happen very often. It didn't happen by very many people. But it does happen. Um, and there are people that will do that in Congress. And the, the goal is just to get them out. And all we can do is vote for good people to go from Oklahoma and hopefully counteract the bad people that are coming from wherever they're coming from. I wouldn't say California or New York, but, you know, wherever they're coming from. Uh, I'm going to take a chance on this one. You talked about leadership, and you gave a series of points that define a leader. But is there one key piece of advice you would offer young people to grab well, hold of? You know, I, I started. I thought you start. We're going to ask this question. Uh, this. I thought this was the question you're going to ask me. But if it, if you were to ask me, is there another component of leadership that you would add to those five things that you talked about? And there is. There's one, and that's humility. Expressing humility 
is really an important ingredient in leaders. So that would be number six. But one key for a young person, you're talking about like a high school person or... Somebody starting out in business, somebody starting out in, in life. So probably coming out of high school yeah, or college. Yeah, and, and um, there is. And that would be, I don't think anybody should ever, regardless of how old you are, anybody should ever expect your record to be all wins and no losses because that's that's not reality. What you have is a mixture of wins and losses. You have wins in life and you have losses in life. The key is not to take your ball and go home when you have losses. It's to learn from the mistakes you make and say, if I'd done this, this would have been different. And then do that next time. But don't just blow it off and say, well, there'll be wins from now on after this, this situation. They won't, there won't be wins from now on. There'll always be losses, and you always have things that you need to learn, and there's always things you need to change and grow and get better at. And I'm talking about in your business, and I'm talking about in your life, and more importantly, I'm talking about in your marriage. There's going to be wins and there's going to be losses. And if you're always trying to improve the losses so that you have more wins, that's where you want to be. But, you know, I can tell you firsthand after being married 47 years, after being in business for 40 some years, that you're going to have wins, but you're going to have losses. And I think the key to life is figuring out how you learn from those losses so that you improve and have more wins. And that would be the best piece of advice that I could ever give anybody, much less a young person here today. That's outstanding. All right, I'm going to try and get two more questions in. You were drafted by Houston, and you didn't really make the team or whatever happened there, and you end up going to Seattle. Did they miss it? Did they not see the talent, or did something in you change when you went to Seattle? Well, I like to think that Houston missed it. Uh, this was Bum Phillips' second year in Houston. And, you know, I think I showed up thinking, hey, here I am. You guys obviously like me. You drafted me in the fourth round, the second draft pick. They had a second-round draft pick and a fourth-round draft pick. I was the second draft pick, fourth round. And so you guys obviously like me, so just show me what to do, and then, and then we'll go from there. And that's not how they do it in the NFL. Uh, you got to prove that you're worthy to be on the field. And there was a lot that I learned from that experience in Houston. Talk about wins and losses. That was a loss for me. And the question was, am I going to learn from that loss and apply it in Seattle? Or am I going to just stew about it, complain, argue, come back to Tulsa, get a job doing something with my biology degree, uh, or am I going to learn from it, get better, and make the team in Seattle, and then get in the Hall of Fame? And my choice was obviously the, the latter. And again, th that's just what I was saying to you earlier. you got to learn from your mistakes. You will make mistakes, but you got to learn from them. And those are mistakes in your marriage, mistakes in your business, mistakes with your children. You'll make mistakes but learn from them, ask people to forgive you, and move forward. 
Awesome. So this last question, this might be a little bit of a repeat based on how you answered that, but I still want to throw this out there. So how is it that people like Steve Largent, who didn't make the team that drafted you, Tom Brady got drafted in the sixth round, Kurt Warner wasn't even drafted, can go unnoticed or missed by the scouts, the coaches, and become first ballot Hall of Famers? Well, you know, I think these stories like Tom Brady or these other guys, uh, me, are great examples uh, that you can talk with your kids about and say, look, this guy went out, he thought he had everything going for him, but he failed. And again, like I said before, you know, your failure can be your friend uh, if you learn from it. Now, there's a lot of people, uh, and even my kids at times, who don't want to learn from their failure. They just want to get mad about it, hit somebody, do something that they shouldn't do, or whatever. But you got to learn from your mistakes and look at your mistakes as friends and not obstacles. And that, that's what I would say. All right, guys, let's give it up for Steve Largent. Thank you. Well, guys, that was fun. I truly, uh, again, it's it's humbling for me to think that I, I was able to stand on a stage with Steve and listen to him talk and, and ask those questions and just get to interact with him. So I hope you found some of that information valuable and informative, but also fun. It was a great time. And hopefully this will help you guys as you go out there to be people of impact and help create people of impact. And it's also neat that this aired at the end of November around Thanksgiving, which we all know is a a true football time of the year. So go out this week and let's be people of impact. See you next time. This is the Fred Carmi reminding you that faith looks up, hope looks ahead, and love looks all around to see whom it can help. Good day.